Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Also, thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. The best place to find great talent for your hiring needs is LinkedIn. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. For a $50 credit toward your first job post, visit linkedin.com. mf Terms and conditions apply. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm completely alone in the studio today. But I've got Rick working the board, so... Yay! In today's episode of Motley Fool Answers, we're taking you to Fool Fest with a special 25th anniversary episode filled of investing and board game advice from Tom and David, our co-founders. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Yes, it's time once again for the episode where we let our listeners in on Fool Fest. Fool Fest is our annual conference where members get together and learn about investing and hang out with their tribe. That's us. And because it's our 25th anniversary here at The Motley Fool, it's an all Tom and David episode. First up, Chris sat down with Tom and David. They took a look back and talked about how their investing approach has changed over the years, their favorite foolish memory, and how things have gotten better for investors over the years. Over the last 25 years, what's one way that your investing approach has changed? Um, And that can be something small, or that could be uh, something that you believed uh, in your core as an investor 25 years ago that today you just no longer believe? Uh, so for me, um, it goes back to my Yahoo story, I think. So Chris, when Tom and I started a site online on AOL, keyword fool, uh, we were basically picking stocks right out front of America. Anybody could join America online and come see what we were saying you should do. And when you have people doing that, you have the ultimate scorekeeper in the sky. Um, It's everyone else's attention. And since we're very numerical and what we're doing um, can be totted up and we're saying, we think we'll beat the market. We think that you can too in a world that it seems like people don't really believe that. Um, Let's do that. Uh, And then we look back on the ones that really hurt, that taught us something. And so for me, like one year in, I got this conviction that Yahoo was going to be a good stock. And and um, spoiler alert, it, it ended up being a very good stock for quite a while. So this is 1995. Um, and so Yahoo is at 29, and I, I had calculated my own valuation for it. At, I had it like 25.60 or something like that. So I was waiting for Yahoo to get to 25.60, which it never did. What it did, though, I think is it got to 2,560 without my or maybe your money on it. And that was the last time that I decided that I'm going to sit there and decide that I have a valuation in my head that's superior to the markets, and I'm going to insist that the market conform to what I believe should happen so that I can get rich. And instead, uh, that was, yeah, that, that changed me forever uh, into saying, you know, it's about buying greatness. It's not about my, my DCF uh, out to the second decimal. Tom? Um, I would say, uh, first, uh, find people that you believe in so much, um, and, and I mean this in the public markets, since that's primarily where we're investing. We think of it with entrepreneurs and, and, uh, and startups, but I mean it with 
companies of any size and in the public markets, find people that you believe in so much that you wouldn't feel bad if you lost money um, with them. And I often say that, or will say that to the CEO, because of course it kind of fires them up a little bit more not to be that person, right? Um, but but I, I think um, the, the quality of the leadership team, what you can learn from them, um, finding investments where, again, if they lost you money, you would learn so much because you believed so much in them, something else must have gone wrong that you could learn. So I think really starting with the people has been a big change. And then the second one was, just listen to my older brother. That's it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, I know people are like, wait, he's your older brother. You look like you're 20 years older than him. <laughs> I, I tell this periodically. So some of you have heard it before, but it delights me every single time. Um, there was a day where um, our team, our awesome team and member services on the phone lines talking to all of you and making sure you're set up correctly with your services. They all kind of came barreling out of their area laughing. It was like, wow, what happened? What happened? Um, well, this gentleman called. Okay, and um, we were trying to make sure he was hooked up correctly, and we were asking him, you know, what service do, do you subscribe to? And he c couldn't come up with a name, so he's sitting there struggling, and then he just said, I can't remember the name. It's, it's the one where the father and son are picking stocks. <laughs> it gets such a great laugh, it's almost like I made it up, but it's true. I know from years of working with you and also just uh, from talking to you over the last couple of days that uh, you don't do uh, a lot of looking back over the last 25 years. You're both much more interested in the next 25 years uh, than the previous. That being said, I would be remiss if I did not ask at least one question about the past 25 years. And Tom, I'll start with you. When you think about the changes in the world of investing, when you think about the last 25 years and all the changes that have happened in the investing world, and you don't have to say it, I'll say it, some of those changes for the better are in part because of the work of the company that you and David built. Um, what stands out as the most ridiculous to you? The most ridiculous, the most good or bad change? For good, like, wow, here's how ridiculous the world of investing used to be. Because, and I'll just throw out as an example, Thank you, when I talk to younger people in the office um, and I talk about uh, regulation fair disclosure, in the year 2000, the SEC, uh, by a very close vote, voted in favor of what was referred to as regulation fair disclosure. It was this radical notion that public companies should disclose meaningful information to all investors at the same time. And when, sometimes when I'm talking to younger people at the office about that, they look at me like I'm insane. Mm -hmm. Like, well, why wouldn't that always be the case? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, and that only one by one vote. And uh, thankful for Arthur Levitt, the head of the SEC then, to really be an advocate for that. And thank you to, to all of you, because we typically, the SEC, when they field comments, uh, reach for comments from the general public on an initiative, um, they'll get seven or eight or 10 um, notes submitted. And I think we sent 1,300 notes from The Motley Fool to the SEC. And, and doing all that, I, Arthur said, um, and said it in USA Today, that he felt that that's what caused us to get that extra vote. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so thank you for that reference, Chris. I'm going to go in a slightly different direction, just a recent memory. We were in uh, London um, um, traveling, um, opened Motley Fool Hong Kong, which was very exciting for us. 
um, and in London and meeting with the, o the owner of a Premier League uh, football team who's a phenomenal uh, fool. Um, it's Crystal Palace, if you follow uh, football. And, um, you know, I, I, I'll just say that he, he was laughing at something that we hear frequently, and it's not a big deal in life, but it just is funny. He said, you know, the wealth managers or wealth advisors I work with, uh, when, they, when they ask me where did that stock come from, and I tell them uh, the Motley Fool, they just they laugh at you guys, like, can't be real. Why are you doing that? And so I, I, I think I am still remain very excited about bringing more transparency of performance. What's laughable to me uh, 25 years ago is that there really was no scorekeeping going on. And, and I think we can do a better job helping you keep score. And I know a lot of you have passion for tools like uh, my first scorecard tools and, and improving that. And we really want to do that. And I just think the scoring system has gotten so much better. I don't think people were comparing their returns uh, to the index fund. In fact, I think a lot of people were talking about index funds under the random walk theory and saying it's impossible to beat the market. And I think one of the things that's helped Vanguard is our community and us saying it's not really that. It's that that's a great place to start. And for a lot of people, that's a great place to end. A totally tax efficient, essentially free way to buy the entire market. Um, and because people weren't keeping score, they didn't realize how much better that is than so much of the schlock that's offered by the financial services industry for, for investors. And, but that you shouldn't stop there. It's not like you can't beat the market. And that's a terrible argument for a host of different reasons. It's just, wow, what a great baseline for everyone to use and we try and beat it. One thing from the past 25 years that strikes you as particularly ridiculous from the world of investing? Well, I'll just say that, I mean, it, it's understandable, but looking backwards and seeing it from our vantage point now, it looks ridiculous, but at the time it made sense. Um, so as a stock market aficionado from my teens, because my dad got me started early, um, I had the opportunity to, you know, just start figuring out what are the tools out there that could make me a better investor. And one of them was just a little guide. It was a little booklet published by Standard & Poor's called the S&P Chart Guide. And the S&P Chart Guide I subscribed to, it came out on a quarterly basis. It had about 500 um, stock charts of like the S&P 500, maybe more like 1,000. I see some people nodding because maybe you are a fellow subscriber. It's $50 a year, so it's not terribly expensive. But that was the only way back then that you could actually see the stock chart of stocks over the last year. Now, if you wanted to pay out for something like Value Line, which many of us will know, um, then you could get it. But that's amazing to think about, that we were subscribed on something that would only come once every three months for $50 to see where stocks had been over the last year. And these days, obviously, we get it all for free in real time for far more than 500 stocks. And did I mention for free? So yeah, looking backwards, that's just for me um, and a microcosmic view of many other things that were true back then. And so a big truth that Tom and I recognized early, maybe earlier than the rest of our industry, is that the internet could be the best friend of the investor. And it was often being portrayed as uh, antithetical to investor interests. Merrill Lynch, which isn't still an independent company today, uh, Merrill Lynch used to say that you know, the biggest threat to America's investors is the internet. And we instead put out a press release a day or two later, and we said, we think that actually the biggest threat to American investors is, is Merrill Lynch. <laughs> what is your most memorable moment from 25 years of fooldom? <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, these, I thought it was gonna get easier as we went. Um, let me see. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give two. Um, one is, 
that uh, the very first time The Motley Fool was ever printed in the Wall Street Journal. I will never not still love that moment. Uh, so it always gets me back in touch with before all of this and all the things that have happened in the last 25 years when Tom and I, our friend Eric, and our small team with a newsletter for our parents' friends got The Motley Fool referenced in the Wall Street Journal. We thought that's, that's hilarious. Our we got our name, The Motley and And really, to get back in touch with that now 25 years later, how awesome is it that we're creating a financial enterprise of, I hope, real consequence in this world, and it's bearing the name The Motley Fool. I mean, to me, that says good things about the future. And I'm, I'm so I always go back to that first time that we pulled that phrase from Shakespeare, thought that, that would be fun to do that, and it shows up all of Wall Street's wise men. It just undercuts all of the, all of the um, pomp and circumstance and three-piece suits and all the rest and, and arrogance. And well, let's be fools. And to think that that, 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 that that first time that happened with Wall Street Journal, and then maybe my other moment, I mean, there's so many moments, and I, I appreciate the question. Um, how about, uh, I think it was April Fool's Day, I think, was it 2014, Tom, or 2015, when we fully paid off external debt? 14. 14, thank you. April 1, uh, uh, yeah, 4 slash 1, April Fool's Day, 2014, we became a fully autonomous corporation with no debt. And um, I know some of you know the story, and we're not going to go back over it now, but at one point, um, we looked at it and we realized that we had nine figures of debt to pay off. Not that we couldn't have done it other ways, but we actively chose to buy out our VCs and the money that had been invested in us in order that we could become our own thing and make our own decisions as a private company that had no outside ownership. And so for about five, six, seven years, Chris, you were there, many other fools in the room were there with us all the way through. We took all of our cash flow and we just paid it out. We had no R&D, we didn't have anything that we could do um, to build. We could, we could be scrappy and innovate in little ways, but we had no R&D, no, uh, all of our cash flow going out the door. And now, for the last three years, and you're starting to see what this looks like, we're starting a venture fund. I'm looking forward to talking with some of you about that this afternoon. We have a lot of new enterprises that we're contemplating, and some of which we're enacting, and we're going to try to make the world more foolish. And I think a lot of it goes down to that, let's pay off the hundred plus million dollars of debt uh, and my brother Tom, more than anybody, has had that vision and has enabled our enterprise to do that. And that, that is a pretty awesome thing. So those are two memories that I appreciate in our first 25 years. Of course, I'm much more interested in the next 25 years for our portfolios and certainly for our business. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home, and it's causing a lot of anxiety with people. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And now here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. And it's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. 
To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. look forward and get some investing ideas. David shares with Chris Hill the trends he's watching as well as 10 stock picks. What new technologies, innovations, and trends are you most excited about moving forward? Well, I mean, there's no question that artificial intelligence is, um, is going to be like Wi-Fi in 20 years. So as Kevin Kelly was saying in San Francisco, you know, 20 years ago, Wi-Fi, not a lot of us knew what that was. And these days, it's this invisible thing, this layer around all of us that we, that we hope is there and that we want to perform well for us and that's made our lives better. And, uh, and AI is going to be like Wi-Fi in 20 years. There's going to be AI all around us. It's going to be certainly in our phones or whatever we're using as phones at that point. Um, it's going to be in the apps that we're using. It's going to be um, uh, in tangible things around us as we walk past things. Um, it's going to truly, in the same way that we're hitting more three-pointers as NBA players these days than we were 20 years ago, uh, we're all going to be a little smarter and better served, and the world will be more personalized and customized for us. And AI is huge, and that's a big part of NVIDIA's story that I wasn't counting on when we first picked it as a graphical processing uh, gaming company in 2005. And so I love companies that evolve and morph. And so technologies that do the same, like genomics, um, and obviously Editas, and CRISPR technology, these are really important things. And so, and the other thing I, I just want to make really clear is, um, number one, um, I, we all have to be willing to lose and be wrong. So what I just said about AI might look silly, I don't know, in 20 years. I don't know if anybody will want to see the Fool Fest video in 2038 of what we did today. But, um, but, you know, we could be wrong. So you need to always be willing to be wrong. And there's not a stock that I own personally, and I hope this is true of you as well, that if it went to zero, would devastate me financially. It would hurt a lot because I have some seriously overweighted positions, but if any one of those companies went to zero, that would be still okay. It wouldn't change my life grandly. So I hope you're not on margin. I hope you're not loading it up on one stock or anything like that. I don't want you to do that and because uh, we can be wrong. And so that's, that's a big part of being a rule breaker and thinking about the future is always be, being willing to be wrong. So all 10 of these are companies that are not presently, I don't think, featured in any other Motley Fool services. We just picked them once or more in Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers. I think I emailed you this list last night, so you did. I need to go back to my email and get it. All right, so let's go alphabetically. And yeah, this is time to take notes because we don't have a graphic for this one. I'm just going to go through these 10 companies quickly, alphabetically. Um, some of them you'll recognize, I hope. The first one is Adobe. The ticker symbol is ADBE. Company is a worldwide leader um, for artists and graphical designers creating all kinds of great stuff, largely in an online world, which benefits from Adobe Graphics, Adobe Acrobat. All, everybody knows Adobe. Of the 10 companies, this is the largest company. Its market cap is $119 billion as of yesterday. So it's been an outstanding, I think, um, uh, stock in the past. I think it'll remain one because they moved from a subscription-based software product that people sort of got annoyed by having to upgrade and rebuy each year in that old model that we remember from the 90s, and they went to a cloud-based, subscription-based product. 
And they kept their uh, worldwide leadership doing that, which is a hard trick to pull. And they've done it really well. So Adobe. Next one is Dassault System. This is the company's ticker symbol is D-A-S-T-Y. And this is a company, this is the second biggest company on the list. Alphabetically, it's also second. And Dassault System is a French company. There aren't a lot of great French stocks in my experience. That's why I like to highlight Dassault as an example in a relatively socialist country of a really fine capitalistic entity that's created a lot of value. And in particular, it's their CAD CAM software. It's their computer-aided design software. Um, and in a world where we're moving not from lots and lots of graphics just on the internet, but toward virtual reality, where there will be even more graphical components to our online experiences. I really like Dassault System. Uh, third and fourth are both E companies. The first is Editas Medicine. The ticker symbol is EDIT. And it's a company that is behind the CRISPR technology. There are a few other players out there in the world. It's a fascinating technology. We don't have time to talk about it right now. Some of you already know it. And if you don't know it, you should Google it and understand gene editing and how it might change your life and mine and the world at large. I hope we'll make good use of it. Like any powerful technology, it can be used for good or for ill. The internet is used largely for good, but often for ill. That can also be true of gene editing. But there's no question that this will be a net gain and will save many lives and improve the world at large. So I really like Editas, but it's an early stage company. It's only a $2 billion market cap. It's the smallest of these 10. Uh, and so it is a company that you realize could vanish overnight if things change one way or another. Uh, and then the, the fourth company is Etsy. And I think a lot of us know Etsy. And E-T-S-Y is, of course, the ticker symbol. You can go to Etsy.com and buy um, somebody's handicrafts. Um, there's a wonderful community of makers and then buyers. And it's a, it's a tough thing to compete with, even in an Amazon-led world. And it's been a good performance, a $4 billion company over at Motley Fool Rule Breakers. Um, next, let's go to two companies, companies five and six, both of which have two-letter ticker symbols, starting with the letter I. Uh, the first one is IQ, and that's Ichii. And that's one of my most recent picks. That's in stock, sorry, that's in Motley Fool Rule Breakers. And, uh, and that's the Netflix of China. And it's starting from a $7 billion market cap, and there's never any pure analog. Um, Baidu is not actually the Google of China, but they're clear enough or fair enough that you can make these comparisons. So if you like Netflix and you believe in that business model, but you realize it's really hard if you're Netflix to get into China. China has a firewall up against a lot of incursions of big-time American players, so Baidu's been a beneficiary of that. Google hasn't been able to get into China so well. So we've owned Baidu stock, it's done really well for us. I think Ichii is maybe another example that we'll see. Uh, and then the other I is IT. And Gartner, which I think a lot of us know, the tech, tech consulting company, uh, which today is worth about um, uh, $12 billion. Uh, Gartner, uh, with its um, magic quadrants, if you know that, or the hype cycle, which I've talked about on my Rule Breaker Investing podcast, they're, they're the company behind that. And what I like about Gartner is that in, in a world in which there's so much complexity and oncoming technology and development all the time, you can see the benefits of being the person, the company that explains to people that might want to use these technologies how the world's changing with more and more tech coming online. I like Gartner a lot. And then my last four are an L, an M, a P, and a T. The L is Live Nation. And Live Nation is a company that I think a lot of us know this, but you know, they, in a world where lots of rock stars these days make their money off of their tours, not off of their album sales, um, uh, Live Nation not only owns the venues where a lot of rock concerts happen and partner with 
and owns some of the artists in those venues, but it bought Ticketmaster. So now it also sells you the tickets to go to the venues that it owns to watch the acts that it's partnered with. So I really like Live Nation. I think it's a really strong competitive advantage and a tough one to compete with. Um, similarly, Match Group, which is the eighth stock and the M stock, Match Group, um, I think a lot of us know Match.com, Tinder, et cetera. It took a little bit of a spill about a month ago or so. I, you guys talked about it on Market Foolery um, because Facebook said, hey, we might want to start doing dating. You know, we think we have a lot of data and meeting people through Facebook might be a way that you could use. Uh, and maybe you don't need Match.com or Tinder or the 40 or so other dating sites that Match Group owns. But I still really like Match Group's focus in this area, their leadership. And uh, the stock has almost bounced all the way back from that spill that it took. So Match Group. And then the last two are Palo Alto Networks, P-A-N-W. By the way, ticker symbols, Live Nation is L-Y-V. And, uh, and Match Group is M-T-C-H. And uh, the last two, Palo Alto Networks, P-A-N-W. So this is a company that's behind firewall security that offers that for a lot of its partners. And we've already talked, our, our wonderful team in the previous hour talked about the importance of security in companies like Okta. So um, Palo Alto is in this world. And what I like about it relative to a couple of my loser picks in computer security, because I took a shine to a few companies like FireEye um, and, and Fortinet, which actually has worked out pretty well. Um, but I took a shine to these companies because I believe that obviously cybersecurity is going to be around for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our race. So I really like a business that is going to be that constant. Um, however, those companies were smaller caps, and Palo Alto Networks tipping the scales at a market cap of $19 billion. That's a more substantial, bigger player that I think is in a better position than some of the smaller fry. And, so, and then the very last one is Teladoc, which I know you've talked a lot about on Market Foolery and, and Motley Fool Money, and I know Jason Moser's been a fan of Teladoc, and, and I am too, and it's a, it's a pick in rule breakers, and you know, in a world in which um, a lot of uh, the benefits that we can offer our employees at companies, um, we don't always have time to get down or wait in line at the doctors just to pick up a phone and talk about somebody and start a relationship with somebody as part of your um, corporate benefits if you're employed as part of your health um, approach, um, your health strategy. I think that's a good business. It's, it's still small. It's a small company. Teladoc is the second smallest on the list at $3 billion. Um, and a lot of people have Teladoc but don't use it. It's a tiny percentage of people who actually use this service. But it strikes me as something that will only be increasingly relevant in the future. And so there we go. There's my next 10. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week, in every industry, even yours and mine. Hundreds of thousands of businesses posted jobs to LinkedIn in the last year, and they ended up rating LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards. Why? Well, LinkedIn considers skills, experience, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates. Go to linkedin.com slash MF and get $50 credit toward your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash MF for a $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. What's the name of the game? Let's wind down our time here at Fool Fest. It's not a conversation with Tom and David if we don't talk about board games and how they've influenced their investing approach and even some recommendations. What is your current 
Favorite board game? And is there one with decision factors similar to your investment approach? We'll each give a quick answer. So my, probably my current favorite board game is a game called Terraforming Mars. Um, it is awesome. <laughs> I mean, uh, I made the mistake of saying that to neighbors who just moved in across the street from us. <laughs> they said, in, in a very loving and enthusiastic way, David, we see you love games. We saw your game room in your house. What's your favorite game? And I answered honestly, which was a mistake, because you should always, as fellow gamers, you should give something that's easy for people to pick up and learn. Uh, like Code Names, which we're going to be playing in a little while. Wonderful game. But I said Terraforming Mars, and so I got an email back the next day. Thank you so much. We just bought it on Amazon, and we look forward to sharing it with our two 12-year-old twin daughters. <laughs> and the thing with Terraforming Mars is that you have to be willing to read rules for about an hour, teach the game for about an hour, and then spend about three hours playing the game. It's an awesome game, because we're terraforming Mars. <laughs> and you learn a lot, and it's infinitely replayable. It has a couple of great expansions. It is an awesome game. That's my favorite game. Um, I'll just say, um, um, in the last year. Um, kind of restating some of the joys of what we've all created together is the network that we have and the people that we've met along the way. And I'm going to encourage you to just cross across the floor at the cocktail party and go talk to somebody that you don't know. I know that's going to happen anyway, but um, I would encourage you to go a step or two farther in that this evening. And any time you get together at the Molly Fool, because you will, as I am, be truly blown away by who's here in the room and who we've gotten to know over the years. And so I'll just emphasize uh, the conversation yesterday with Matt Calkins. Um, Matt, after we did the interview in our office um, um, two months ago or so, he said, hey, you know, you guys should come over for game day at my apartment. Um, so we went over uh, to Matt's place uh, um, about 20 minutes from here, Dave and I, and David's one of David's sons, and we played games, which was awesome. And a lot of Appian developers there. It's just kind of fun. You get to know a little bit about their culture, but the great thing is playing games. And so I played Matt, and I'll just cite this game. I think many of us know it's worth playing it um, if you haven't recently, and that is the old classic Acquire. Being a board game player, what game has taught you the most about how to best invest in the stock market? Um, you know, probably, uh, I don't think any game does a particularly good job talking or teaching the stock market. In fact, one of the things we're doing, and I'll probably mention this sometime tomorrow, um, is that we're building, in a very low-key way, a mobile game uh, at The Motley Fool, where maybe next year at Fool Fest, you'll be playing it. And I hope, if you do, that you'll enjoy the game. And we'll have a little bit more information about that tomorrow. But. Um, why am I mentioning the game? Because, right, because even our Motley Fool mobile game isn't really about the stock market. I mean, the stock market is a great game on its own, and to win it, you and I know we should show patience, and we should build things up over years. As Epictetus said in a quote that I had on my podcast last week, no great thing is ever created suddenly. And so the problem with gamifying the stock market is you can't really do that in one sitting. Um, and, and if you do, it, it looks like a stock market simulation accelerated in some weird way. It's just not that fun a game, I don't think. So when I think about, like, how can we learn about the stock market through games, I would say maybe we did once have a Motley Fool game called Motley Fool Buy Low, Sell High, created by one of our favorite um, game designers, Reiner Knizia, who is our partner in that. And it's still available, um, some, some boxed editions online. It's not actively sold anymore. But Motley Fool Buy Low, Sell High does a good job kind of teaching kids or grown-ups, people of any age, that once everybody else has walked away from something, that might be a good time to buy. The problem with that is it's not really kind of my rule breaker approach, but it is a great lesson 
about when popularity wanes, that's a good time to act. And so I, I like that lesson of that game. To what extent, if any, does the way that, uh, that you approach board games and your love of board games, to, to what extent, if any, does that affect your view of investing and the way that you invest? I'm tempted to want to make all kinds of important connections because then it would justify all the amount of time that I've spent board gaming. <laughs> I could say what a good investor I am and if you board game more, you'll be a better investor. I'm tempted to do that and I'll try to do that. <laughs> um, so I, I think the best thing about games is, well, there are two things that I love about games. One is they have rules. That's one of the definitions of games. And so um, a rule set, a framework, the design of a rule set or a framework, one that could hold up for decades like the game of Acquire or one that would have just shown up recently like um, deck building games like Dominion. Um, that's a really great achievement. And some of my favorite artists are, are the designers of games because they're thinking through systems and then they're putting it out there and you and I are trying to beat each other with them. So one of the things that I love about games is is, is that, and the second thing that I love beyond rules is that I love that we score. And that's the most important thing for me as an investor, and I think for a lot of us. Um, really, since the first day that we launched The Fool Chris, August 4th of 1994, um, we put our own real money online that day, and we said we're gonna invest it in front of America. Anybody wants to come to AOL, keyword fool, you can see that we're going, what we're do, gonna do, we're gonna tell you ahead of time what we're buying so you can front run us if you want. And um, that first week, we, we bought AOL, which was a great stock pick. But it was, it was really the scoring out front of the public that has forced us to learn, uh, change, evolve, continue to evolve. And so that's another thing that games do so well. They give you a score at the end of the game. And um, if you're a gamer like I am, and I know there are a lot of you, you've lost a lot. And so you're OK with losing. losing is, is how we learn in a lot of ways. And so the score that we get at the end of each of these games closes a loop on a system that makes us smarter the next time we play it. And I love that about games, and I think that can help us all as investors. Well, that's the show. It's edited competitively by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Don't forget to send us a postcard while you are on your holiday travels. Rick, particularly, you're traveling somewhere. Are you going to send us a postcard? I'll send you something from Dollywood. There we go. We'll take it. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. For myself and only myself today, <laughs> stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.